Heavenly Father, we thank you for making us one in your Son, Jesus Christ, for filling us with your Spirit, that we might um, sing with true joy together as a family. We pray that you would assist us, Holy Spirit, to live as one, uh, that we would realize uh, what you have made true of us in our, in our living together. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would be stirring our affections for Jesus now. We pray that you would be softening our hearts to receive him, opening our eyes to see him. And may the words of my mouth and, and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our text for this Pentecost Sunday is a, a psalm of ascent that celebrates the unity of kindred. That's one. How good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. That's how this psalm begins in verse one. But it's important to point out to you that this psalm is not necessarily talking about kindred of the flesh and blood variety, brothers and sisters who share a biological parent. The kindred celebrated in Psalm 133 is the kind of family that's formed when unlikely people share a common bond and are united in that bond despite their differences. And we know this is the definition of kindred that the psalmist has in mind because Psalm 133 was incorporated into the Psalms of Ascent. The book of songs the saints would have sung by memory as they traveled from their little towns and villages to Jerusalem where they would celebrate one of the three festivals held in that city every year. There in that city, people from every tribe would gather. And while it's true that together they made up a single country, it is not true that that commonality therefore translated into unity. There was great quarreling that took place amongst the tribes of Israel. But the people would sing this song on their way to Jerusalem in order to remind themselves of the necessity and the goodness of living together in unity for at least seven days. The seven days they would spend in the cramped quarters of Jerusalem, a city bound firmly together, as Psalm 122 describes it. And this non-biological kindred is the kind of kindred the psalmist has in mind. And it's the kind of kindred represented in the church. We are brothers and sisters who share a common spiritual father. To quote Paul in Ephesians 4, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. While there may be real flesh and blood kindred in the church, the thing that unites us is not our blood, but the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made us one. And there's one spirit that lives in everyone who calls themselves a Christian. It's not just a Christian, not just the saints in this building, but those in the First United Methodist Church down the street, right? in the Assemblies of God Church on, on Sherry Whitlock, in St. Mary's Catholic Church, and in Central Cristiano Hispano on 412. Right? We're all children of the same Father brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and in all of us dwells the Holy Spirit. 
But what is so remarkable to the psalmist, so worthy of praise in this psalm, is not so much the fact that we are one, but that we live together as one. That our physical life on this earth actually reflects the spiritual reality we confess. It's remarkable because it isn't easy. Not even Peter and Paul always got along to say nothing of Paul and John Mark. These were first century Christians, apostles even, and even they bickered and, and fought. Only God has been able to sustain unity amidst diversity for any truly extended period of time, and he's been doing it for all of eternity. There's only one God, and yet throughout Scripture, we learn that this one God eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, unity in diversity, perfected. And God created humanity to reflect this relational dynamic. And for a split second, we were successful in that task. God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, living in unity with each other. And he called it good, very good. He was pleased with it. It's the same declaration that the psalmist echoes in Psalm 133 as he praises the ability of diverse peoples, kindred, to live together in unity. And by echoing the, the blessing of Genesis as he invokes the word good, he is showing us how difficult the task is for us. It's Edenic in nature. And yet how necessary it is that we strive to recreate it because it reflects God to a watching world, which is the very reason we were created in the first place as his image bearers. In a world that's aching for unity, the church has the opportunity to prove that the blood of Christ and the water of our baptisms is thicker than any blood or any other marker that might be used to categorize us, whether that be race or sex or nationality or ability or intelligence or beauty. But perhaps you're asking yourself, but what should that unity look like? Which is a great question. First of all, it doesn't look like the absence or loss of difference. This being Pentecost Sunday, it's significant to me that on Pentecost, and in the account you had read for you earlier, that God doesn't create a new language, a Christian language. Instead, the, the Holy Spirit miraculously enables people to speak languages that are native to a diverse people. The language of the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, Romans, Jews, Cretans, Arabs. In other words, God is establishing a kingdom, a new creation, a new people that preserves ethnic and national identities while at the same time giving us a far more significant and fundamental commonality in Christ and in the gospel that allows us to transcend these important identities in order to accomplish the difficult but divine goal of unity in the midst of diversity and thereby reflect the beauty of our triune God to the world. But we must recognize in order to do this that that God is more important than country or the color of our skin. You, you don't have to hate 
your white, black, or brown skin in order to be a Christian, but it can't be the most important thing about you. You don't have to renounce your citizenship in a country of this world, but it can't be the most important thing about you either. Your confession must be that you are a Christian first. Otherwise, unity in diversity is an impossibility. Unity doesn't look like the absence or loss of difference. It's a reprioritization in the light of the gospel, but it's not a loss. But that's a negative definition. Unity doesn't look like the absence or loss of, de- of difference. Is there a positive definition? Yes, there is, and I'm glad you asked. There is a positive definition of how unity uh, we seek as Christians should look, and it's found in the gospel. The gospel tells us that we are fully known and yet loved. Jesus knows all about us, and there are many ugly things about us. Some of them are so fundamental to us that we stopped seeing them long ago. And yet, despite that intimate knowledge of us, he loves us, and he was willing to both live and die for us. He sacrificed himself so that we would no longer have to live in fear of either God's displeasure or of death. In Christ, we are promised both the embrace of the Father and the rest of eternal life. And Tim Keller often summarizes the gospel this way. You are far, wor- far worse than you can possibly imagine, but far more loved than you will ever know. But Jesus knew how thoroughly corrupted we are in all our parts, and yet he loves us to the core of our being. Both of those things must be necessary for the gospel to truly be good news. Knowledge and love are both necessary. Knowledge without love is cruelty. And love without knowledge is sentimentalism. But knowledge with love is the gospel. And that's what our unity should look like. A knowledge of another person in which you see all of their personal or cultural flaws, but you love them nonetheless. There is no person, no country, no culture that is without flaw. But in order to truly love them, you have to be able to see these flaws and look past them in love. Because you know that the only way you will experience true love is if someone does the same for you. And just so you don't wait around for someone else to initiate with you, Christ has done it for you. He's begun the process. He has seen you and loved you so that you can see others truthfully and yet love them anyway. That's what unity looks like. And I'm so glad for the NWA United Commission that's led by Miguel Rivera that the session has formed at the church because they're going to help us to begin a pursuit of unity with kindred living in our city by increasing our our knowledge of the Hispanic population in Salem Springs through relationship and education. Remember, love without knowledge is just sentimentalism, or as it's often called today, virtue signaling. So let's seek to know our Hispanic brothers and sisters living in our city And as we come to know them, let's insist on love so that our unity might be genuine and not superficial. The NWA United Commission is 
is um, continuing to, to talk about how we can do that. And they're going to offer some great opportunities for us to do this together, to live together in unity as kindred. Our goal is not to make a show of the gospel, but to inhabit it so that our little city might reflect the kingdom of God on earth. And at this point in the sermon, I'm aware that I've not moved past the first verse of our three verse psalm, nor have I explained why in the world my sermon is titled Beard Oil and Mountain Dew. It's titled that for two reasons. One, in order to make you chuckle. I hope to have accomplished that. And two, because beard oil and Mountain Dew are the similes that the author chose to illustrate just how good and pleasant it is when kindred dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. And it's like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. These two images of oil dripping down onto Aaron's collar and falling over his robes and and the dew that drops on Mount Zion were images of hope and comfort in ways not necessarily obvious to us because of our distance from the culture and geography that would have been familiar to the psalmist whenever this poem was penned. The first image, the one of oil dripping down Aaron's beard and spilling over his collar is an image of ordination first prescribed in the desert outside of Egypt. There, the Hebrew people learned that even though they were no longer enslaved to Egypt, they were still enslaved to sin and death on account of their humanity. They had been redeemed and yet were still in need of redemption. And there, in that wilderness, they learned that the price for redemption from sin and death is blood the blood of a human being. We are, after all, the ones who brought death into the world through our rebellion and attempted coup against God. We are the offenders, therefore our blood is the price of justice. But in his mercy, God set up a system whereby we could delay our judgment by sacrificing animals in our place until a human being could be found to satisfy God's demand of justice. Like the animals that would be offered, this human being would have to be perfect, without spot or blemish, faultless. And so it was going to be a while before such a person could be found. And in the meantime, the blood of bulls and goats held back the judgment of God. But it couldn't be just any bull or goat. As we just mentioned, they had to be perfect. Neither was everyone free to sacrifice an animal whenever or wherever they wanted, God set up strict guidelines for how, where, and when animals were to be sacrificed. And because of that, he appointed a specific people to make sacrifices on behalf of others. And these were the priests. And a lot, life itself, was riding on their shoulders to do things according to God's prescription. The presence of the priests was a great comfort to a people persistently afflicted by sin. Because they knew that someone was always going to be there to intercede for them. And of these priests, Aaron was the first. In Exodus 29, we read about how God made Aaron and his sons priests. They were first stripped of their clothing and then washed clean. 
And after that, they put on designer clothes that were intended to communicate the representational nature of the priests. A person was supposed to look at the priest dressed in this way and see not a single individual, but all of Israel. But the crowning moment of this ordination ritual was when oil was poured over the head of Aaron. Oil has always been associated with the Spirit of God, a sign of his presence, setting a person apart for some vital role in the church. Aaron was anointed with such oil. He was set apart by the Holy Spirit to act as priest and to intercede on behalf of God's people until a suitable human sacrifice could be found. And this continued for many, many years, long after Aaron died, until that suitable human sacrifice was at last found. It was, of course, Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. He was suitable because he was a perfect human being. And he was a perfect human being because he was God. He was the longed for sacrifice. And yet, in an unexpected turn of events, it turns out that he was also the priest offering himself up on our behalf. He is both sacrifice and priest. He's the priest we can find comfort in because even though we persistently sin, we know that he has offered a sufficient and final sacrifice for humanity and will now always be there to intercede for us. He, Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope and comfort that the oil of ordination dripping down on Aaron's beard would have brought to the people. In Jesus, we have the assurance that someone is fighting for us, praying for us, advocating for us in this world. But this psalm is saying that kindred living together in unity is like the oil of ordination. What's that mean though? When Jesus is the fulfillment of both priest and sacrifice. Well, this simile likening the goodness of kindred living in unity and the oil of ordination is saying that despite the sufficiency of Christ as both priest and sacrifice, the church continues to be called to the responsibility of interceding for the world and Christians are called to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their neighbor. We are in a sense still priests. St. Peter himself says this very thing to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as priests, the sacrifice we offer, like Christ, is ourselves. But we offer ourselves not in death, but in life. We're called to live for the world, to pray for the world, to advocate for the good of the world, to proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness and to always point people to Christ, our sufficient sacrifice and persistent priest. But this psalm is saying that our success in this calling is compromised. If we, the priests and kindred through the sacrifice of Christ, cannot even live together in unity, either because we have found it difficult or because we haven't even tried in the first place. In other words, we cannot fulfill our calling as the church in this world 
if we ourselves are not united in genuine and meaningful ways with those brothers and sisters who are different from us in personality or politics or culture or educational background or socioeconomic status, any of the markers that divide us. But that's just the beard oil. What about the Mountain Dew? The image here is much more straightforward. The goodness and pleasantness of kindred living together in unity is likened to the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Scholars point out that Zion, a poetic name for Jerusalem, is a dry mountain in comparison to Hermon. Hermon has snow on its peaks while Jerusalem has dust. But if the dew of Hermon were to fall on Jerusalem, then her dusty peaks would be sure to burst forth with life. The dry land would be refreshed and bear fruit that would make her inhabitants rejoice. A transformation of this sort is an, an image often used to illustrate the effects of salvation. God turns deserts into pools of water. He turns parched land into streams of water. It's a hopeful sign of life a sign that the Spirit of God is again hovering over something barren in order to bring life out of nothing, just as the Spirit did in Genesis 1. And this hopeful image is likened to kindred living together in unity. Our insistence on knowing and loving our brothers and sisters in this city, on living out the gospel, will result in a refreshment of our city a new life bursting forth in unexpected places. It will be a sign of the Spirit's presence, just as much as the fire and languages were a sign of the Spirit at Pentecost. You know, we often pray in our prayers of the people that God would refresh our land. And here he is telling us how refreshment comes by kindred living together in unity. So let's pursue this unity together with great energy and conviction of spirit in order to fulfill our calling and experience renewal in this city. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.